Your turn, Patty. The contents of the lab report are meant for educational purposes only. They're not meant to be misconstrued as medical diagnosis or treatment advice. Today on the lab report, stop doing it. We get it. It's nope. hard. It's not your fault. Stop doing it. We're here to help You're you. You're just going to have to stop. We'll help you. The world of medicine can be challenging. Clinicians and patients are always looking for more options, more effective treatments, and in the end, more answers. Functional and integrative medicine focuses on addressing root causes of disease. Here at Genova Diagnostics, we've watched this field evolve and grow for over 35 years. We've not only adapted, we've led. Join us as we talk about functional medicine, laboratory testing, and optimizing health. Welcome to the Lab Report. Well, I finally broke down and did it. I took my first sick day in over five years. Five years, Michael. That's a long time, and when you do it, you go big or go home, <laughs> and you went home with a big one. <laughs> Hello! Hi, Michael Chapman. How are you today? I'm doing okay. How are you, Patty Devers? I'm on the mend. Yeah. <laughs> What's that mean? <laughs> you don't have a fever that's gone uh, systemic throughout your listen, body? Listen, I'm not saying that. I'm uh, just saying I'm on no, the No, you do have a fever. That's correct. That's right. But you've got one day of antibiotics left, so you're golden. Sepsis <laughs> ain't got nothing that's on right. one more day of antibiotics. That's right. Well, you're always sick, so you are chronically, intermittently sick because that's right. of your children. That's, so That's exactly right. You have a different immune resiliency than I do. Yeah. Yes. It's the long war in my case. <laughs> it's, the, it's the long Good war. Good for you. Uh, anyway, this is a podcast. It's called The Lab Report. It's brought to you by Genova Diagnostics. And uh, thank you, Genova. Thanks, Genova. Uh, they they put the microphones in front of our face for good or for bad. Uh-huh. And with that, we talk about stuff like specialty lab testing, integrative therapeutics, functional precision, integrative medicine, all that good stuff. That stuff you like. I assume you like it if you're here still listening to us. <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, what can they do if they actually kind of like any of this stuff? Well, if you like it in mm. any regard, please follow us on follow, iTunes, yeah, Spotify, follow, not subscribe. Right. The word now is follow. Leave stars. Feedback, and you know we've been getting a lot of interesting feedback via email, Michael. Does it sound like please stop? <laughs> Two <laughs> stars. Anything like that? No. that ring a bell? No, actually, really nice things. Oh, okay. Well, we appreciate nice things. We appreciate all the things. If you have mm-hmm. things, you can send it to podcast at gdx.net. That's our email address. Unless you're trying to solicit, you get out of here. <laughs> and if you're a consumer interested in ordering Genova's tests yourself, you can go to connect.gdx.net. There, we'll also try to connect you with the Genova client to help guide your healthcare. Speaking of guiding healthcare, mm-hmm. uh, what are we talking about? That's that's part of what our show is about. I would it say is. is trying to figure out healthcare and maybe some of the areas in which we can support where healthcare is not quite as optimal as it could be. Correct, and I think that's where Genova's testing comes in to fill in some of those blanks. But even not only are tests filling in the blanks, but when the results come back, there's a lot of interesting interpretations that happen that may or may not be correct. And so we feel like this might be a place where we can help out. Yeah. And we're going to focus specifically on stool testing today, right? Yeah. I think this is something we could do. Man, we could do a 10 part series, probably even a more (laughs) part series on misconceptions. And part of the reason it's not to point blame, point fingers, make anyone feel bad or dumb or anything like that. Right. It's more so about these tests are complicated. Sure. These tests are absolutely complicated. There's a lot of ins and outs. One of the hardest things I think about understanding some of the specialty lab testing and understanding uh, all this biochemistry that we talk about on a regular basis is that it's uh, it's kind of like a complex web that we weave. You mm-hmm. know, there's there's 
trying to understand all these different variables, how they fit together. So um, it's natural for there to be misconceptions, especially when you're used to being trained in more of a conventional standard and you think, you know, a low means this and a high means that. Um, it's not always the case in some of these more nuanced tests that we offer. Very true. And literally all day long, our team speaks to clinicians and we educate and we teach these things. We create support guides. We create videos. But even with that, when someone gets to know the test really well, sometimes they put blinders on and stick in messaging that may or may not be correct. And we thought we'd hit some of the more common ones as it relates to findings on the GI effects. Yeah. So basically, we're just going to be pointing out where things are not so accurate when they maybe are discussed or or even commonly thought about within our community around how to read some of these biomarkers. So with that, we might as well warm up some of these buzzers <laughs> to really, you know, send the message home it. of what is sure. incorrect, sure. what is correct around interpretation. Uh, and I think I'm ready to go over here. Where do you want to start, Patty? Well, I think one of the most common misinterpretations of results is around something called the products of protein breakdown in the digestion and absorption section of the GI effects. And I think the place to start, Michael, is what are the products of protein breakdown? So the products of protein breakdown, here's the funny thing, right? It's called the products of protein breakdown. So if I were to ask you, what is this thing? You'd be like, well, they're breakdown products of protein, <laughs> right? Because right? it's right there in the right? name. But, but for whatever reason, and I think there's maybe a good reason, it's not super, despite that, it's not super clear maybe what we're looking at here. And so I'll start high level and say, first and foremost, they are short-chain fatty acids. Short-chain fatty acids that are made when bacteria ferment things in the gut, okay? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. they are breakdown products, and we call them products of protein breakdown because most of these short-chain fatty acids are made when protein is fermented in the gut. And so typically when we're looking at a level of these protein products on a stool test, if they are elevated, it insinuates that there is maldigestion or malabsorption of protein. Uh, if they are low, it could potentially indicate either fairly decent absorption and digestion of protein or low intake of protein. And I think that's the first place I would start with it. Where's the misconception coming from, Patty? Well, there's there's a lot of misconception. And I think just to drive it home what you just said, I think physiologically in my mind when I look at this section, when I eat protein, it should get broken down, stomach acids, get reabsorbed through your small intestine such that pieces of protein should not be making their way all the way to the stool because when they do, they get fermented to make these short-chain fatty acids, as you said. There's a lot of misconceptions out there. Basically, when they're seeing low products of protein breakdown, they're saying, oh, well, you need help digesting these to get more into the large intestine, and that is opposite, opposite of what that is. Right, Thank right, you. right. Yeah, I, and so I can get where this is coming from because if you see the word protein mm -hmm. and then you see the word fat on, and then you see the values, the results on a patient's result low, you think, ah, okay, it says protein right there, it says fat right there, and the, the result is low, so they have low protein and fat digestion potential, so they need help. And that's wrong. not that, that's exactly Opposite. wrong. Right. Opposite. What you want is you want if they're elevated, that's not what you want. But if the patient's result is elevated, that means it's it's making its way through the GI tract and it's not getting them digested or absorbed. And that's the problem. Correct. All right, we solved that one. Now, one thing that makes the protein products, and we've talked about this before, but it begs repeating, interesting, is that they're short-chain fatty acids, as I mentioned. So it's not just about digestion and absorption, potentially, um, because they are made by bacteria, 
could very well be that if you have a bacterial overgrowth in your gut, like a SIBO, a small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, just a normal digestive capacity could result in high levels looking like it's an issue with protein digestion when in fact you just got too many bacteria in your gut Mm -hmm. and they're going crazy. (laughs) They're fermenting that protein all over the place and that's why you have the result that you do. So keep in mind, um, it's not just a direct one-to-one connection to maldigestion, malabsorption of protein because they are, at the end of the day, short-chain fatty acids. I'm just going to do that for good measure. That was good. That felt good. good. Let's move on to the next. I, this is let's bang this out. This feels good to get some of these misconceptions I knocked out of here. Let's clear let's clear the air. I think next let's talk about some commensal bacteria levels. Now we know the commensal bacteria live in our gut. The word commensal means I, coming to the I, table. I know that. Yeah. Right? So these are bacteria that work within our GI tract to make various important metabolites for our systemic health. And the balance of these commensal bacteria can also contribute to important health outcomes. But sometimes on the GI effects, you will see a commensal bacteria that says below detectable limits. And people freak out. Oh, no. They freak There's out. There's no commensal. Where are they? Exactly. Where's the commensal bacteria? They're all gone. What are we, what are we gonna do? <laughs> Where'd they go? How are we gonna help? No, okay, so here's the thing. Um, there are a lot of different commensal bacteria. Yes. In fact, our microbiome potentially has thousands of commensal bacteria. Correct. We're measuring 24 from a qPCR perspective, and those 24 uh, are might be the ones that are most represented in a patient. They might be the ones that are not the most represented. And so if you look on that page of 24 commensal bacteria, you'll actually see these little gray bars for mm-hmm. each of the results where applicable or applicable, or mm-hmm. however you want to say that. Eh, I like it both ways. Fascinating. So what at the end of the day is there's a lot of these bacteria for a lot of people that are going to be below detectable levels. So what those little gray bars are telling you is for a that percentage of the healthy group, they didn't have any of that commensal bacteria. So if there's a gray bar that's halfway across the result, that means that half of the healthy people didn't have any of that commensal bacteria. It's perfectly normal. So the fact that you might have a patient's result that has three, four, five, even more commensal bacteria that are below detectable level, that's not a concern. That may, in fact, actually be very similar to the healthy group. So always compare it to what those gray bars are uh, telling you about how how fr- prevalent the bacteria are. And it doesn't mean that they're not important or that they don't do amazingly great things. And I think one of the big aha moments we've had as we've developed the GIFX as we've brought on the microbiomics and whole genome sequencing is the concept that it may not actually be as important which bacteria are there, but rather what they're making and what they're doing. Because just because... Sorry, I thought that was profound. Thank you. Just because you don't have acromantia doesn't mean that your mucin lining's in big trouble because there are tons of different bacteria that can help to replenish that mucus layer. So the point to be made there is, okay, just because you're missing one that might be important, you likely have a bunch of other ones we're not measuring that are taking over that job. Yeah, and I would add this one other thing, too. So the fact that historically we have always said the power of the commensal bacteria analysis is not in, like, any one specific bacteria. It's in the pattern. It's in the pattern mm-hmm. analysis. And so that the thing we're trying to show is certain bacteria have the propensity to maybe make inflammation, create inflammation. Others have the propensity to create methane. They do these different functions. So it's not really about each 
in every single organism is what percentage or what proportion they are in with respect to each other. So uh, at the end of the day, as I'm trying to not say that as frequently, mm-hmm. um, and you'll have to tally me every time I I'm say it on this podcast. Thank you. That's it. one. Uh-huh. Um, that what we want to understand not is is there a bacteria high or low, but what is the overall pattern? That's why we have that roll-up microbiome analysis on pages two and three on the report. So at the end of the day, thank you. let's not freak out. Does it? Do I get one back when you say one? I'll give it to you. Sweet. I'll slide that end of the day back in my pocket. Um, so another one that we see frequently from a conversation standpoint with clinicians is when to go for the antimicrobials and antibiotics with potential pathogens. And so, I don't know, Patty, maybe we should start with, like, potential pathogen, question right, mark? Right, And part of the GIFX, we actually do a culture of the stool to see what grows out in the culture. And we label things that are overtly pathogenic, like salmonella. Interesting. You really pronounce the L in that pretty hard. I, I Most people, I think, don't they say salmonella? Isn't that just pretty? Um, I, you said salmonella. I've, I've not heard it. I'm not saying it's wrong. I just haven't heard it as often say, said that way. At the end of the day, it doesn't really matter. <laughs> okay, but it kind of matters to me now because I think you're making me look stupid, and I don't I know that I'm right or wrong. I did not do anything. I'm <laughs> not making... I don't even have the power to make you look stupid, Patty Devers. No one thinks you're stupid. I guarantee it. But you know I can't let it go, right? I do know you can't let it go. You so know I'm going to have to Google I, it. I assume that's where this is going. Patty, salmonella is a long word. It's not that long. i got to I mean, add that extra L in there. <laughs> What could you possibly... You are putting this in the chat, GPT, aren't you? That's the only thing I can think of. Got it. All right. Okay, you know how I could Google little videos that show you how to pronounce various words? Yeah, been there. Yeah, I think we've used this some, from time to time. Yeah, I'm just going to hit this first one that I found. So you're just... We're, this is... Okay, go ahead. Salmonella. Hmm. Salmonella. Interesting. How about that, Michael? That sounds to me like not a human, right? It was not. It was a bot. <laughs> I mean, okay, that's fine. It did sound like salmonella, which uh, if you, uh, I don't know, have you ever been, heard an automated, like, phone answering service where mm. they, um, you know, you'd be like, you know what? I no. don't think this person naturally speaks English. In fact, I don't think they naturally speak a language other than zeros and ones. So I, I'm I not going to necessarily trust yeah. that part. Of, do you have anything else maybe am, that would be argue. a human s- pronouncing salmonella? All right, let's 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 try this one. We are looking at how to pronounce this name, as well as how to say more interesting and often confusing medical terms, and some of the most mispronounced ones too. So make sure to stay tuned for those. This is the name of a bacteria. How do you say it? Salmonella. Salmonella. That sounded like salmonella, didn't it? No, that sounded like a real human. That, Creepy though he may be. I don't know what that sounds To be honest, I don't know what that sounded like <laughs> other than a fever dream. That's pretty much what that sounded like to me. Oh, good. It's not just me. <laughs> good. But I do want to say that there is etymology around this as it relates. Would you like to hear that? Sure. So in general, when we say the word salmon, like the fish, mm-hmm. the L is silent. However... Salmonella was not derived from the word salmon, but Get it was named here. after its discoverer, Daniel Elmer Salmon. So salmonella is the proper pronunciation. Did you say Daniel Salmon? Yeah. How do you spell his last name? <laughs> S-A-L-M-O-N. But he said I Salmon. S- Your Honor, I have no more questions. <laughs> uh. Anyway, thank you for clarifying around uh, 
<laughs> salmonella. Uh-huh. Uh, what, what about salmonella? Well, we were talking about, just to bring this back to what we were talking Thank about. You. We were talking about the GI effects and how we do culture of the stool, looking Correct. to see what grows out. And if there is something overtly pathogenic like salmonella, mm-hmm. we give some specific sensitivities to those. Yeah. But there are also things that grow out in a stool culture that aren't overtly pathogenic but are known at high levels of growth or depending on the overall health of a patient can cause symptoms Sometimes they're associated with various disease processes, but they're not overtly pathogenic. We call them potentially pathogenic. Right. And we've got a lot of great evidence, probably, I mean, more and more every single year. As time goes on, we learn more and more about these potentially pathogenic organisms like B. fragilis. We've talked about Mm -hmm. B. fragilis a couple times recently where... You know, Bacteroides fragilis is not necessarily a pathogenic organism, but we do know that certain subspecies, certain groups have the capacity to produce a toxin. And so there's these different types of organisms all over the place. We think of uh, Proteus mm-hmm. as being one of these organisms. Certainly the most common, most well-known opportunistic organism would be C. diff, which also turns out that can some people can just harbor it and, and be a carrier of C. diff and not have any symptomatic presentation. So the long and the short of that rambling explanation was that there are bacteria that you may want to treat sometimes because they're causing problems, and then other times they may not be causing problems. So don't go in guns a-blazing just because a potential pathogen grows out on the stool test because there are other things you can do to crowd them out. Like you can support the microbiome with pre- and probiotics, which make up which may take up some of that real estate and crowd those levels of potentially pathogenic organisms down. This is where the clinical decision-making comes in sure. because yeah. people w- might respond and say, well, this is an organism that's been associated with autoimmune disease. That's a clear indication that we should eradicate it at all costs or... Candida albicans is a scourge of the earth and should be mm. eradicated at all costs. So the problem is that um, there are not easy solutions when you just go in there guns ablazing with antimicrobial therapies, especially some of the more harsh ones, whether that's pharmaceutical or I think of the oils, the aromatic mm, oils yes. like oregano and thyme. Those are not necessarily not sparing Correct. to your beneficial bacteria. And mm-hmm. what we've seen time and time again is that if there's no uh, necessary need, uh, you know, the, honestly, at the end of the day, a lot of these potential pathogens are going to produce diarrhea or abdominal cramping in your patient. You said it again at the end of the day. Man, I have a problem. We'll just keep an eye on it. <sighs> okay, so what you're going to end up doing is you're going to open up free real estate for other potential pathogens. And this time, they're probably, they probably are going to be up to no good. And we see that all the time with repeat testing where somebody comes in and they're like, I found a Proteus and I went in there and I gave a bunch of oregano oil and Mm. this, that, and the other. And now they've got three potential pathogens and they've got diarrhea. And it's like, okay, well, did they have diarrhea to begin with? Maybe you should just have supported the commensal bacteria to begin with, crowd them out, crowd out any of the potential pathogens, and we wouldn't be in this situation. Okay, I'm going to piggyback on what you just said there, Michael. Okay. Because it always does come back to the clinical presentation. And another place where things are misused and misinterpreted are in some of the add-ons to the GI effects. We do some EIA testing for some pathogenic bacteria and toxins that, you know, many clinicians just arbitrarily just check all the boxes, give me everything, add everything on, blah, 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 blah. And these are very specific clinical presentations. So if you have a patient who's not 
profoundly sick with diarrhea. Do you really need to add on shigatoxin, E. coli, or campylobacter, or C. diff? Like, what are you going for to look there? No, I, I guess I agree for, for two reasons. One, the likelihood of finding a positive of one of these add-ons for a, a significantly pathogenic organism like shigatoxin, E. coli, and somebody who's asymptomatic uh, is very, very low. Mm-hmm. If they have the presence of one of these toxins or antigens to one of these organisms, they are going to be presenting pretty darn sick. Correct. Uh, and if you are finding positives in somebody who is asymptomatic, then I would be questioning what's going on there from a testing perspective because uh, they're not subtle presentations when you're infected with one of these organisms. Second, I would say, is that if you were to find... Uh, a positive in somebody who's asymptomatic. And really, I think the only time here at Genova that I've seen this is with respect to the C. diff Mm add-on, where sometimes we'll find a positive in somebody and they ran in it that they're asymptomatic from a GI presentation standpoint. And then you run into the situation of, what am I going to do? Right, right. I've got a positive here. Uh, I don't know if it's contributing to any sort of symptomatic presentation because they're asymptomatic and I ran it anyway. So I'm, I'm totally stuck here from a treatment perspective, which can be another dicey place to, to put yourself as well. Right. And I think at the end of the day, Oh, wow. I feel like I feel like Super Mario got an extra life there. <laughs> At the end of the day, we all want to be responsible stewards of the microbiome. We don't want to use antibiotics in excess when they're not needed. We want to maintain the integrity and the diversity of the microbiome. So let's all just be responsible stewards when it comes to treating bacteria and adding on tests that may or may not be necessary. I'm totally going to double down on that because Uh-oh. in the community that we are in, precision medicine, functional medicine, all the all the other things, we should be of the ilk that has been championing championing not cha- championing. championing. <laughs> what is that? It's a hard one. What is that word? It's championing. Hard, championing. It's a tough one. Wheels are falling off the cart. <laughs> we should be not overusing antibiotics. Right. 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 That is what we should be standing for. When right. it co- that should be like principle number one of GI right. evaluations. Like we here are aligned from the standpoint of not using <laughs> excessive antibiotic use. What's that voice? Is that is, us? As this a is somebody proclaiming from the mountaintop okay. is oh, I right. think what I was trying to do there. Go for it. Uh, and so let's not do that. Let's not throw things aside because we have culture analysis for potential pathogens that are new and groovy and, hey, we didn't know and and we've never really evaluated that in traditional medicine. So let's not use the same therapeutic mindset when it comes to this. Let's be a little bit more selective and specific and support the microbiome to crowd out bad guys and approach it that way. Unless there's a major reason to bring out the big guns and get rid of somebody. Then you're going to do it, right. All right, Patty, I got one. Okay. I got, I got, I got a biggie from a misconception. Wow. Are you ready to go? This is, I don't know. This is something that people get wrong all the time. I might need to prepare. Not their fault. Not your fault if you're out there listening. Beta-glucuronidase is high. I'm going to bring down that number by giving you some calcium deglucurate. Oh, yeah. It, that's interesting because we all know that giving calcium glucurate has nothing to do with altering the levels of beta-glucuronidase. No, Patty, we don't all know that. In fact... <laughs> We're here I to help. We fact, are here to help. I, I'm finding that not not anywhere near all okay. knows well, that giving calcium deglucurate actually lowers beta-glucuronidase. It doesn't. Okay, but we know it's important to give that no, we calcium don't. deglucurate when beta-gluc is high, but why do we give it then if it does not alter the level of beta-gluc? Okay, calcium deglucurate 
acts on beta-glucuronidase, which is an enzyme. ASE. Okay? Mm-hmm. So it, a, Patty's saying ASE because it ends in the, <laughs> the letters ASE, uh-huh. ACE, beta-glucuronidase, which indicates that it's an enzyme. Right. Was the uh, inside baseball that Patty Sorry about there. that. No, no, I was just clarifying. And so the calcium deglucurate works on the enzyme to prevent it doing its work. Enzymes do work. They do certain actions. Mm. They do things. The calcium deglucurase kind of prevents it. It's like a blocker. So that is what it does. It doesn't actually lower how much beta-glucuronidase is being created in the GI tract or how much is being excreted in the GI tract. That's totally separate. Okay, so we agree it's important to give calcium deglucurate when beta-gluc is high. It is an intervention that you could use, yes. Correct, but then the question then becomes, how do you lower beta-glucuronidase? Beta-glucuronidase is created, enabled by the microbiome. It's created by bacteria in the gut. And so the way to lower beta-glucuronidase in the gut is to lower the concentration, the relative abundance of the bacteria that make it in the gut. And the only way that you can do that, we don't have, you know, a surefire way because we're talking about microbiome modulation. It's not, it's not always one thing that's just going to do that particular action. But we know that bacteria such as the Bacteroidetes group bacteria, Clostridia bacteria, some of the other ones are more likely to make beta-glucuronidase, and those are associated a lot of times with more standard American diets. Maybe diets higher in protein have been associated with this as well, so perhaps uh, addressing those dietary concerns to modulate the microbiome would be the way to do it. But in the meantime, that's where you use your calcium deglucurate because it's like a Mm Band-Aid. At the end of the day, that's a Band-Aid. End of the day? Oh, God. Travis, get me out of here. Next time on The Lab Report, Pratik Patel. Optimizing nutrition and performance in professional athletes. I got a lot of questions for him. I mean, at the end of the day, I've got, <laughs> got a lot of questions. You've been listening to The Lab Report. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our podcast, rate us, and leave us a review. To learn more about Genova Diagnostics, visit our website at gdx.net. There you'll find information on specific testing, educational resources, and how to connect with our show. Call us at 1-800-522-4762 or email us at podcast at gdx.net. Man, this has been eye-opening. This is the, we the all fact do that it, I Michael. say this so often and had this is a blind spot-ish moment. No, Michael, when we first started this podcast and we started recording, you and I both had lists of things that we sure, didn't realize that sure. we said repeatedly. And we've worked through those I've issues. Got, I've got one, by the way, all right. that just came to me Go ahead. during We All Know. This That's is true. This is one that you do. That's true. So we're gonna have we need to have some sort of arrangement. We gotta resurrect the list. We gotta start over, man. I think we need punishments too. What? For like for, for excessive what? abuse of these phrases. Yeah. I don't know what Not it's gonna physical be. Physical abuse. If you have ideas for punishments, wow. Podcast Keep at them GDX. To yourself, <laughs> punishment at gdx.net. <laughs> punishment at gdx.